listening to the Pharmacy Podcast Network. Hello, and welcome to Pharmacists United for Truth and Transparency, the PuttCast. Putt is a not-for-profit industry watchdog organization dedicated to exposing the truth about the shady, abusive practices of pharmacy benefit managers and how they affect American patients, healthcare providers, and taxpayers. On the PuttCast, we'll talk to pharmacy industry experts, influencers, and patients, always with the goal of bringing the truth, transparency, and solutions to America's prescription drug affordability crisis. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the podcast. This is Monique Whitney. I am Putt's Executive Director, and I am so very happy to have with me, as always, my wonderful co-host, Lauren Young, our Vice President. Lauren has a bit of a strained voice, but Lauren, you want to say hi? Hi, everyone. Thanks for joining us for this episode. And Lauren, thank you for joining us as well. It really is always wonderful whenever you're around. We, Lauren, have a really special guest. Uh, You and I were chatting a little bit about his work a few days ago. We have Jeffrey Lewis, who is the president and CEO of the Legacy Health Endowment. And I'm not even, Jeffrey, I'm not even going to introduce you. I'm going to let you introduce you. But uh, before I have you do that, uh, one of the things that I talk about a lot here at Pet Lauren, you and I talk about this, the board and I talk about this, we all talk about this, that what we're here for are solutions. It's so easy to get upset and to, you know, go into terminally downward thinking. Um, I was at a, this is a true story. Um, nobody knows this. You guys are about the first to hear this. So I was at this dinner last night with some of the stakeholders here in Arizona and we were all uh, chatting about, you know, like how things are going. And it was a weird conversation because it was kind of like, ha ha ha, isn't it so funny how the opposition and by the opposition, we mean PCMA and the PBMs, isn't it so funny how as part of their strategy, they um, do things like threaten to pull funding from politicians and stuff. And and I left the dinner kind of not feeling as happy as I started that dinner with and was thinking about that and thought this is an example of what I'm talking about, right? Like we we tend to think like, oh, there's a solution and it's going to go great. And then you find out something or you hear a rumor or whatever, and then all of a sudden your thinking takes a left turn, right? And so just sort of thinking about that last night and thinking about that today makes me especially excited, Jeffrey, to have you on our program because you are a recognized thought leader in solutions and turning Mm -hmm. things around. So with that, would you please introduce yourself and the Legacy Health Endowment? Thank you. So I'm Jeffrey Lewis. I'm the president and CEO of Legacy Health Endowment and the EMC Health Foundation two rural-based foundations in the California Central Valley. Um, We build solutions. So unlike other people you might talk to who are gonna talk about problems, we look at it as a problem, as an opportunity to build a solution. Which is so incredibly great. And just, we're excited. I'm excited to just like jump right in on that. So I think one thing that would be helpful for the people who are listening is to get a sense of what is it that this endowment does? You do work in a regional area uh, in California, but but generally speaking, like what do you do? How how is this endowment formed? What are the things that you work on? Just give us a sense of that. So our footprint is limited to 19 zip codes in two counties, which is basically the southern part of one county and the northern part of the other. Um, It was created when the local hospital, which was a nonprofit, sold to a for-profit as an asset purchase. So they purchased the hospital and the cancer center. The proceeds from that sale, known as net proceeds, were then what created the foundation. So 
we work within this limited geographic area, this, this bi-county area. We use charitable dollars, think of it like a venture fund, and build solutions that range from um, rebuilding the healthcare infrastructure where you don't have enough doctors, nurse practitioners, physician assistants, nurses, medical assistants, et cetera. We created a nurse practitioner program at Cal State Stanislaus, which is near our office. We've graduated almost 60 nurse practitioners so far. Um, those who are on scholarship, you know, have to work in our 19 zip codes for three years as a sort of a repayment plan. You know, you go to school for free and here's how you pay it back. Um, we've got five students in med school that we're paying anywhere from 50 to 100%, and they'll owe us anywhere from three to five years post-residency or fellowship. Um, and they can practice. Anybody can do it in the for-profit or nonprofit space. It doesn't matter. Uh, we have graduated two students from dental school. One is in Southern Merced County, where we do a lot of work. And we have another kid who's just maybe about 20 miles, less than 20 miles south of, uh, north of there working in at a federally qualified health center. So the idea is, you know, using charitable dollars in a way that people talk about, to your point, but we actually just do it. But the but the work we do is well beyond, from an education perspective, it is to rebuild the healthcare infrastructure means you have to understand what people need. I spend a lot of time talking with people about the challenges they face as an individual, as families, you know, what is it like as a mom to have a child with intellectual disabilities? And then what do you need you as a mom? What do you need to survive? Because a kid gets services under Medicaid or Medi-Cal, but the parent typically doesn't qualify for anything. So we're looking at how do you build a solution to help him or her? And how do you keep the family intact in the process? We have a long-term care project that we created in these 19 zip codes focused on any person over age 60 with uh, two or more comorbidities, limitations and activities of daily living. We put in about $700,000 of foundation dollars. The city of Turlock, <clears throat> which is where our, our office is, gave us $200,000 just for Turlock, older Turlock residents. Uh, we just got a line item and appropriation that starts next month for $125,000 for, again, to spend. We're providing services to these individuals, you know, ranges from respite care to homemaker services to uh, behavioral health, uh, palliative care, et cetera. And what you would learn from this, because there's always there should always be a lesson, is what does it cost to care for Monique, who is a 77-year-old, single woman with congestive heart failure and diabetes and limitations uh, that she can't bathe and a couple of other things. So what does it cost to take care of Monique in her home, however we define that, and then compare that to what's it cost if she were in a long-term care facility, assisted living, et cetera. So we'll have a very rich database. Um, we build partnerships with both the for-profit and the nonprofit side. So it's not just with nonprofits, because if I can find a great for-profit partner, we work with them as well, as we've done in, in this particular case. Um, CareLinks, which is the largest respite care provider in America, is our case manager. TinRx, which is a pharmacy, an independent pharmacy in Turlock, is our pharmacy partner. So if the patient or the client needs medications filled or refilled, 
and can't afford it, we include that as part of the as part of the program, and then we reimburse Tenorx ourselves. Again, I said we have a palliative care provider, an FQHC partner. So if you don't have a primary care doc, we'll assign one. If you can't get to the doctor, it's either telehealth or they'll come to you. Again, you know what you can do in rural areas that urban America has forgotten about, because it's all about how do I help you as opposed to just talking about it. And we focus a lot on the employer side. I am deeply concerned about you know, the growth in high deductible health plans and is the greater deductible a barrier to care for a family or for the parents in the family? And so if you focus on the children, which is great, at some point, you know, one of you needs something, whether it's a vaccination, could, you know, whether it's just a, you've got sinus infection, but you're not going to see a doctor or going to an urgent care because it's all cash. You've got to make sure you have to meet your deductible. So we're going to actually be polling in about next month or so, uh, talking to employees and employees enrolled in high deductible health plans, asking them a series of questions about what are the barriers to care. And then we're going to identify, and I've already actually done this, two small rural towns in our area where I know at least one has a high deductible health plan for its employees. And we'll do, we'll find another one. But the goal is going to be if we partner with a federally qualified health center and give them, let's say, fifty to $100,000 each, and they can use those dollars for help to helping those individuals meet their deductible. So again, if Monique's a 75-year-old woman, she's just got three years younger. Um, she walks into an FQHC. She's not your traditional under 200% of poverty persons. Her income is, let's say, 320% of poverty. So it's still not much money. But there's no sliding fee scale for her. So, And she's got a high deductible health plan. Um, if we can help get her in for services and we cover the cost of care, which applies towards her deductible, we're now helping make sure, A, she gets the service, and B, uh, it goes again, and we give the clinic the money to pay the deductible, that portion of it. Does that help the, those individuals in high deductible health plans um, access care more quickly? So a lot of what we do is answering questions that we generate on how do you help middle-income America, which everybody forgets about from D.C. down, how do you help middle-income America survive at a time when it's you know, the price of gasoline in Little Turlock, California, which is about 70,000 people, premium ranging from $5.05 a gallon to $5.75. And $5.75 for a gallon of gas versus a gallon of milk. Wow. And that's what middle-class families are facing. Now, it's not that low-income families don't face the same thing, but the conversation is always about lower-income families as opposed to about the middle-class. So through the philanthropy, we are running programs that deal with the population. There's no income barrier. There's no income limits. It's really about how to help. We're concerned about the cost of prescription drugs. People aren't filling or refilling prescriptions. I'd mentioned a pharmacy called Tin RX that we partnered with, run by two or owned by two incredible women entrepreneurs. I had a conversation with them, talked about this, and ultimately we designed a formulary together. So you can go to Tin RX today if you if you're commercially insured or uninsured. So we exclude Medicare, Medi-Cal, and the VA. And in any one of 700 different generic medications, you can fill for $2.
And we use charitable dollars to make up the difference in copay plus a dispensing fee. That's amazing. Now, if Monique is now a 45-year-old, well, younger, 33-year-old woman with two dogs and she's and she's working full-time and she's insulin dependent, you know, she's been paying, you know, anywhere from 150 to $400 a month out of pocket for insulin plus any comorbidities. So we launched a, another program with our colleagues at Tenorex for a $2 insulin program. You can fill your insulin for $2 if you have commercial insurance or uninsured. And we'll cover the cost as well for any comorbidities. So because you can't offer these kinds of solutions to a Medicare population, uh, the rules say that the feds have to approve anything you do on, on dabble on, on a foundation side in Medicare. We've uh, asked the Office of Inspector General at HHS for a waiver where any Medicare insulin-dependent diabetic who's enrolled only in Medicare, so excluding Medicare Advantage plans and dually eligibles, uh, but particularly Medicare Advantage plans, um, where we could build a program so you know, across our 19 zip codes so that if you, Monique now is much older and she's on Medicare and has to fill her insulin, there's, we identified three specific pharmacy partners, different pharmacies. You can fill your insulin there and your comorbidities related to your diabetes and no copays. We pick up 100% of the copays. And again, then, then the question becomes, well, how does this savings help Monique and what does she do with the savings? So because we're also research junkies, or at least I am, you want to know the answer to the question. So when some elected official who may or may not know what they're talking about, um, or they're being uh, persuaded by a PBM to do something which makes absolutely no sense, um, we can come back with substantive information and say, here's what the data shows, and here's the data, and, and then help them build the solution. So my background has been historical in, in the sense of working at the congressional level where I was a staff director, uh, the gubernatorial level when I worked for the last Republican governor of Oregon, uh, and then the private sector where you can build solutions for private employers or public entities. And part of what we did was a lot of work on pharmacy to really help state legislators understand what the spend was and most importantly, how to reduce that spend. And you use their data, which often they don't have access to or don't understand because state staff may not be able to explain it to them or the procurement process in state government is maybe better now, but a number of years ago was abysmal. So we build those solutions as well. And when you show a state legislator or a speaker of the house or a Senate president, here's what the state of We'll use Arizona as an example. Here's what the state of Arizona is spending. You're spending, you know, $2 billion on prescription drugs for Medicaid, Department of Corrections, public health, HIV AIDS, public employees, public retirees, the list goes on, corrections, et cetera. Here's how much money you could save by changing your purchasing power. Here's how much money you could save in corrections by partnering with a covered entity in the 340B space, uh, as the state of Florida did many years ago, uh, for inmates who are incarcerated for just HIV AIDS and any comorbidities. So every, as opposed to partnering with a for-profit um, correctional entity, I can show you how to save a lot of money. 
Uh, we did that for a number of governors across the country, um, very successfully, and some used it, and some said, said thanks uh, because they were persuaded by lobbyists and others. I think I became the poster child for one GPO in America, somewhere in the upper Northwest, who you know, must have been throwing darts at me every day because I got the contract that they had between that they existed between the wholesaler and the GPO, which of course that was disclosing data to a state legislator that said, oh, by the way, one of the reasons you're spending so much on generic drugs is because you don't get access to the lowest net source pricing from the GPO, excuse me, from the wholesaler because their contract between the GPO and the wholesaler prohibits them from giving it to you without the permission of the GPO. So, you know, you then explain to state legislators from a procurement perspective, it's not just about the contract language. It's about the procure, it's about who are they're also working with. You know, it's not, you can blame PBMs for a lot of things, but there's some things you can't blame them for. You know, there's there's enough greed in the process from GPOs and wholesalers where when you begin to look at the intricacy among the three, you find things out that uh, you have that aha moment. So, yeah. you know, as a CEO of a, as a, a philanthropy, we use these kinds of tools uh, to not only build solutions, but to implement solutions to help people access um, medical services, pharmacy services, et cetera. No, I appreciate you. I, you, you, uh, You've aged me and unaged me beautifully. And also the other thing, something you said made me laugh um, when you were talking about they might be, what did you say they might be sticking pins in you? Or I've been having for some time these mysterious pains in my shoulder. And now I'm wondering if somebody at PCMA, PCMA has like a an effigy doll and they're sticking needles in it. <laughs> you know, the PCMA, they have a new the, the fellow who was president years ago left, and I'm not sure who it is now, but maybe what we should write is a piece that talks about the future of PBMs. And what do you think the future of PBMs is? I, you know, given your unique perspective, what what do, I would love to know what you think about that. I think you're always going to need PBMs um, in one form or another. I mean, they serve a very specific purpose if you really drill down, which is the adjudication and building formularies. And for the, that's what they do very well and have done very well for, for forever. You know, the downside is how they negotiate with pharmacists, particularly independent pharmacists, how they build formularies with employers to exclude specific specialty drugs, make them you know, either tier four, tier five, or not included. Uh, but it, then if it's an intelligent PBM, they learn how to use copay assistance programs and coupon programs for those drugs that are excluded from the formulary to enroll the employee or the member in a program like that. That seems so. You know, there's a lot of focus and there's a lot of negativity on PBMs and there's and there's good reason for that. But there's also good reason to talk about what they've done well and what the Congress hasn't done well and what the White House hasn't done well, irrespective of party, is the mergers and acquisitions. So when you've got, you know, the top three PBMs with 80 to 80, what, 80 to 85 percent of the market, they can basically dictate what they'll, what happens and what doesn't happen. Yeah, we, in fact, we are very pleased that the FTC is finally taking a look at the the mergers. I mean, they're looking at it across the board, but particularly with integrated healthcare, 
you can't escape this. They're the largest insurers have pharmacies, they have doctor's offices, they have specialty practices, you know, they, they have everything. And it really doesn't benefit anybody. And in fact, this thing you just said about how some of the smarter PBMs will go and uh, they will somehow incorporate copay assistance program into their plan to help, you know, cover the cost of these expensive drugs. That's a real frustration. And I, I don't know what your perspective is as someone who works on these public private partnerships, but it does call to mind, you know, what point, at what point do we as people who pay our healthcare premiums and, you know, participate in good faith in our health plans, at what point do we start to start get our, um, this isn't said well, but get our money's worth, if you will, because I think of a public-private partnership as being able, being there to fill the gaps for that middle America that you referenced who gets forgotten. They do. Mm -hmm. uh, but I don't think of it as someone who's working at a an employer who should be able to meet those costs, but isn't because someone has said, hey, why don't you just have your employee with this special need go find the help elsewhere, not be covered on our plan or, or have this be excluded, just send them to a third party. Well, but if you, if you exclude drugs from a formula, which is typically going to be specialty drugs, and you have the right PBM partner, which can enroll them in a copay assistance program or a patient assistance program, the employee's not losing out. The employer is obtaining significant savings if the employee agrees to participate and you give the employee no copay costs. You have to incentivize it on both sides. If the employee is going to participate in a copay assistance program or a patient assistance program or you know Canadian import program, you have to make it so that there's a reason for that employee to participate. On the employer side, it's you know it's a significant savings depending on the size of the employer and the health plan they're, that they're enrolled in. That's the value of a self-funded plan for employers that can enroll in self-funded plans that they can really build for their employee population or as employers for themselves, things that they can afford to do. You know, there's this there's this misnomer that employers should be doing a lot more. But at the end of the day, with inflation, you have to look at what is it cost for um, Whitney Pharmaceuticals to operate and keep its 200 employees, which is probably with 500 members in its health plan, um, active. And what are those costs and how can, how can Whitney Pharmaceuticals really build a solution that makes the most sense without losing its shirt? And people are unforgiving about those kinds of things. They don't really think about the employer in that case. Or imagine you're an independent pharmacy owned by a pharmacist and you know what your margins are. You know, your margins have shrunk to nothing on the brand side. You've got, you might have slightly margin, bigger margins on the generic side. And you inherited this from your father who passed it on from his father, whatever it might be, or mother to daughter. People are quick to criticize, but not quick to think, well, how does this impact them? So when we build solutions, we're always looking at the full circle of partners. And in an example with what we do, I make sure that there's always a dispensing fee built in. If you have a pharmacy partner who's going to play with you, basically, and accept your idea, and then you know, you're going to pay for all this stuff, 
they can't lose money. That's, solutions for pharmacies have to be that they're, at the end of the day, first and foremost, it's a for-profit entity. Tax status is irrelevant. They're, they have to make money, cover their costs, have some kind of a profit margin built in. And if you don't do it that way, then a philanthropy, it's really shame on you. Um, that's what this country is, is really all about. And it's, it's a handshake. It's, I'm saying to Monique and your pharmacy, here's what I want to do. Can we do this together? Okay, step one. Step two, okay, let's, can we build a formula that makes sense to both of us? Okay. Step three, here's what we want to do. We want to build a copay program. Uh, we'll pick up, we'll, you pay $2, we'll pick up the difference in the copay. So you know, as a pharmacist and a purchaser, what the spread is on those drugs. You, you might be paying a quarter of a penny or more for that particular medication. And I know, because you've disclosed this to me transparently, that your 30-day cost is $1.40. So I'm paying the difference between what the PBM would have paid. So let's say it's eight, you, I pay the copay, $8, plus you get a dispensing fee, which is now 10. You're not losing money. But you did it in a way where you recognize the value of the pharmacy and the ownership of the pharmacy by saying, I have to ensure that if you're going to help us with our creative ideas, I have to still make sure you're making money. Now, that's not philanthropy in the true sense of what you hear across America, whether they're big or small. You know, they want to dictate about certain things. I live in rural California now, having moved out from the East Coast, and it's a different world where you have to help your neighbor, where you have to build solutions that really are, in my mantra is real solutions for real problems. And if you forget about that, then you've really forgotten about the soul of this country and the soul of the families that you're working with and trying to help and really never forgetting about the forgotten middle, which everybody forgets about except us. There's this corporatization of healthcare it wouldn't, I think, necessarily be bad. I mean, one of the interesting things about the United States is that we do have our healthcare outsourced to corporations, nonprofits, for profits, whatever the status is. As you said, that's not so much the relevant part. But I wonder, you know, as we look at the future, if if we're going in the right direction, if the gaps need to be picked up by philanthropy like you're talking about. So I think on the one hand, what's very exciting about what you do is that it's a real solution for a real problem. Regardless of anything else, there are coverage gaps, there are people who need care, they need uh, medication, they need training, right? That's got to be handled. And who's going to do it if not not the philanthropy and the, the foundational groups? But I guess what I wonder is, is that the future? Do you see that as the future? Or do you see with what is, and this really is, you know, I'm curious about your opinion on this with all of the things that are happening in Congress now or not, or not. Well, for us looking at the 30 some bills that have been introduced just on pharmacy benefit manager, sort of, sort of reining in some of the things that PBMs have been doing or that are questionable in their practices. That's exciting, right? To see that even with that, is is it going to be enough? Is that, you know, what do you see is going to be our, our future, given where we're currently going? Well, you already have the corporization, corporization of healthcare that's already done, been done. Yeah, and it started with Kaiser. 
and they've got a business model that works exceedingly well. And you've got all these you know, private insurance plans that have tried to copy it one way or the other. And, and you know, years ago in the late 70s, we created Medicare HMOs. Conceptually, great program. Kind of built off the Kaiser model, conceptually. Until those Medicare recipients, as they aged in place, started costing more than what the you know, what they were being reimbursed by Medicare. And then the Medicare HMOs in Florida, as an example, started dumping patients. You know, and it's only a question of time is when is that Medicare Advantage plan going to face the same kind of challenges? So we deal with these problems every day it, until such time as you have a real large surplus of physicians, which we'll never have, where you can have specialists that people don't have to wait three to nine months to get to see. And that's not caused by corporate America. That's caused by the fact that the Congress is ignored and the White House, again, irrespective of politics, have ignored these kinds of issues. These are not tough problems to solve. But if you don't spend the time, it's, you know, you can have 30 PBM bills. Okay, that's great. But how about one bill that actually does a real job on looking at the 340B program and defining what is a patient? of a 340B program. And how much spread on a 340B drug can that pharmacy actually keep? You know, so what the CVS is, I mean, excuse me, what the private, some of the chain drugstores do in terms of the 340B side versus what a private independent pharmacy does. Um, why, don't we, why don't we spell out those rules? Well, there's such a lack of courage to really dive into this from the left and the right. Because the left is afraid, well, if we open up the definition of the patient and really define it like it was supposed to be, then, you know, our constituency will have problems. Well, I'm not sure who their constituency is in that case. But, and, you know, in the right hand, and the far right is real concerned about, you know, doing this without disrupting nonprofit or disproportionate share hospitals, who are where the program basically started. It's one thing for candidates to talk about healthcare. Most of them just, it's, you know, it's a talking point and a card that they use. They don't understand it. And the value today of independent pharmacists or pharmacists generally is so much greater than what people give them credit for and what they're able to be reimbursed for. They never make the cost of care. So I would rather build a health solution where a pharmacist collaborates with a physician's assistant or a nurse practitioner, independent pharmacist, doesn't have to go to whatever the CBS Caremark model is or whatever Walgreens is doing next, but build it together so that people can come in. If I need help, I can go see the, the, lo the local medical care provider. Um, I can see a doc in a box, but it's right in the pharmacy, right in the grocery store. Uh, and again, when you think about this urban versus rural, you know, in some cases you can't find that people can't get access. So you have to figure out how to do this. So let me give you a real life example. We, we have two counties. One is more rural than the other. And they're both very rural. But, you know, we have an FQHC partner in part of one. And people who need specialists have to go to either Stanford, which is a two or three hour drive, depending on traffic, or the University of California, San Francisco, again, a two or three hour drive. 
and you're on a waiting list to see somebody. So we're working with the clinic, again, using charitable dollars to bring a specialist every three weeks into this one clinic. And we're collaborating with one of these university-based partners. But the goal is if it works with this one specific specialty, subspecialty, then I will have, I hope to have entree to their colleagues in other subspecialties. So if I can bring Dr. Whitney, who's now a 35-year-old brilliant neurologist to this clinic once every three weeks, has a panel of patients from 7 a.m. or whatever, you know, is it eight to five, six, and then leaves for the day and goes back and, you know, it's, it's an, and is an employee of a large university-based system, and the FQHC is just reimbursing them for the day, you know, once every three weeks, they're reimbursing the system. You bring rural care to the people, you know, in rural specialty care. So I'm going to take you in another limb, which is at some point, I'd like to take the pharmacist out of the office into the home of Medicare recipients. You know, pharmacists do those, bring your drugs in a bag, tell them, talk, and we'll see what you're, anything's duplicative, you shouldn't be taking, um, and you bring them in. We have a lot of people who can't get to the pharmacy. If the pharmacist leaves his or her pharmacy, they're not making any money. So why don't we build a program where that pharmacist goes into the home, just like a doctor, a nurse practitioner, or a PA, delivers that service and talks to the patients at the same time. Why don't we build a system for behavioral health patients, particularly on Medicaid, or in my case, Medi-Cal, uh, who are on multiple behavioral health drugs, where the pharmacist manages the care, the pharmacy care, just the pharmacy care of that patient, and decides that he's going to, you know, he has his goal is to make sure that Shannon, who is a 24-year-old um, person who's got psychotic-related issues, stays on her meds that Dr. Whitney is prescribed. But we incentivize it for the pharmacist by saying, okay, we're going to let you participate in the pharma care or the pharmacy care of, of Shannon because we're going to increase your copay for all the care given to, you know, that Medicaid, you know, Shannon's a Medi-Cal patient. You're managing your pharmacy. You're the one making the phone call or texting whatever mode it is to get her to come fill or refill her beds. And every time you're doing that and she stays current, you're getting an enhanced dispensing fee. We built that solution in Iowa with the Iowa Pharmacy Association a long time ago. I think Tom Temple was the head of the Pharmacy Association at the time, brilliant guy. And you know it worked to help pharmacists on the behavioral health drugs. Well, why don't we do that? Why aren't we doing that in Phoenix or Scottsdale? Why aren't we doing that in other parts of the country where people talk about the needs of, the, of people with behavioral health challenges? A pharmacist plays an incredible role in that, not just filling the drugs, but you know, monitoring what's going on with the patient. But we don't value today that pharmacist's role. And that's wrong. So when we build solutions like that, we then bring the farm. So, you know, any pharmacy that we work with, we make sure that they're reimbursed appropriately for their time of care. Where do your ideas come from for things like that? Because everything that you've just described is something I, I don't, can't think of a single pharmacy out there that wouldn't be like, yes, you know, that's what we went to school for. That's what we are here to do. We're not 
pill counters behind the counter handing yeah. you your bag. You know, the ideas come from listening, first and foremost, to listening to people who I think are smarter than me, participating when and phone calls that are could just be an absolute waste of time, but I'm listening because there could be that little nugget that oh, that's a really interesting idea. Talking to patients about what would make their lives better, talking to employers about what they, you know, it's listen, it's a lot of listening. I mean, I'm a, I'm a ferocious reader on scholarly articles that other people have written on stuff that, and going back in time into the 60s and 70s and seeing, is there anything we missed that might be really relevant today? But I love talking to pharmacists. Maybe they're easier to talk to than doctors because they give you, they'll give you the five minutes as opposed to the, the doctors looking at his watch, you know, okay, I got, you know, I got 20 minutes. I'm out, I'm over my limit. You're 20, minute 21. I got to get out of here. And, but at the same time, I spend time talking with our local docs about these kinds of things. And I meet with the chief medical officer for one federally qualified health center every Monday or Tuesday. Now we're having cigars, but we're meeting and, uh, we're, and we're talking substance and you know it's a great time for me to ask lots of questions and vice versa okay we can you know it's like okay this is easy to solve here's what we have to do or last night i was sitting with uh, the mayor of a small town this county supervisor from that from that county the new city council member from another small town excuse me all over cigars and but listen to what the challenges they face. And I'm, and I'm like, God, this is so easy to fix. And, you know, they're in a high deductible health plan. Okay, well, what if we focused on not just on illegal immigrants, undocumented immigrants, excuse me, but why don't we focus on everybody? So if you bring the undocumented immigrant to this pharmacy, why don't we also help everybody else but we can put the charitable dollars up to match the money you got from this undocumented immigrant program. And now you're not, no one can say there's bias. Now it's anybody can enter the door, anybody can get assistance. So we'll pilot that in a couple of places and see how well it works. And part of what I, I'm lucky at is that I can get elected officials, some elected officials, not all, some elected officials to listen, and then I make the story about them. So you don't see me other than on the op-ed page. The stories are always about the elected official because when, you know, Senator Whitney has got this thing she wants to do and I'm just the guy behind the scenes trying to help and she gets a great headline or she gets above the fold on the front page of the, whatever the, you know, the newspaper your town is in, you're a happy camper and people are, you're texting it to people here. You might want to read this. And I'm just like, okay, my phone's going to ring again because the senator got great coverage. What's what do you want to do next? Sometimes it's all about being humble and using a position like mine to really not just create solutions, but making sure that they work to help make people's lives better. Um, sometimes it's one life at a time. Sometimes it's a lot more, but it's the important part of the work that we do to never forget anyone. It doesn't, economics and income are not the issue. It's really, I'm looking at the soul, the person we're, we're trying to help and because there before the grace of God could be me. So you never forget that and you never forget a beautiful smile.
That's just absolutely lovely. So we're going to move into the last part of the podcast and everything you've been sharing calls to mind so many of the members that Shannon and I talk to all the time. We've got a lot of brilliant, creative people who are in the the PUT membership body. And, you know, if someone were to have an idea or someone had not, maybe not even an idea, but they identify that gap, what advice would you give them for being able to find someone to partner with them similar to what you do. So you, you work with 19 zip codes in central California. Uh, There probably aren't very many organizations like the legacy health endowment, but what would you, what, what advice would you give for someone if they were in, you know, a a state in the middle part of the country looking at a gap and thinking we got to do something about this? Well, let's just use Arizona as an example. So you have a couple of philanthropies, I think, in Arizona. You probably have more than most people know about and everybody knows about. But you get a couple of big ones. and But you also have corporations who, do, who are doing business there. And you know, how do I partner with that corporation? And what will it cost? What do I need to do to optimize this idea that I have that I've now talked to? Uh, Professor Whitney about it, Professor Lewis, and we've, they've built me this solution and they've run the numbers and here's what it's going to cost to do this. And the impact in our community where you have a huge store will be significant. So imagine you're partnering with a large supermarket chain and that does not, they don't have an in-house pharmacy built into that uh, supermarket. They want to be better known or there's greater competition. You have to look at different ways to build a solution. It's not just about dollars. It's about ideas that can create greater competition that somebody might not want. So, you know, if there's a big box store in Scottsdale and there's one 10 miles away that's family owned, you don't want your, you don't want your people going to Whole Foods or something else. You want them staying here. And how do I do that? Well, I'll bring you a solution to how to do that through my unique pharmacy program, and they help cover the cost. It's hard finding dollars to fund creative ideas because a lot of foundations operate very differently. They fund very limited things. They don't get on the ground like we do and crawl and walk and talk. So it's the tougher part, but it's not the impossible part. It's when you say, can you fly over to Phoenix and spend the day with us and let's talk through how to do it? And the answer is always going to be yes. That's fantastic. So so what I hear is there's a solution. It's not necessarily going to be obvious. It can be, don't, don't be intimidated by asking, but, but ask, you know, start, start, you know, talking to your community. And I think that makes a lot of sense because it sounds like that's exactly what the legacy health endowment started doing from the time that someone had the idea to put it together. And now here you are having funded so many programs, including this wonderful one that you've set up with 10 RX. And and we know them because they are also members and yeah. And and that that's exactly what people should do. So thank you, Jeffrey Lewis. Thank you so much. We appreciate you being on the podcast. Uh, any final words of advice for the greater audience out there? You have to have congruent goals, even if it's just with one entity. 
Nonprofits should never be afraid to work with for-profits to achieve the objective. Tax status is not important. Look into the soul of the person that you're working with, if you understand what I'm talking about, and figure out the solution together because it's easier to work collaboratively than it is not. Beautifully said. Thank you so much. And for everyone who's listening today, thank you so much for joining us. We always love your feedback. Please drop us a line at info at truthrx.org. And for now, and on behalf of Lauren, thank you all so much for joining us. We will see you next month on the podcast. <laughs>